Hello, and welcome to another installment in a special series of podcasts from the Hoover Institution accompanying the launch of our new immigration journal, Peregrine. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and joining us today is Clint Bollock, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of the Goldwater Institute Center for Constitutional Litigation in Phoenix. Clint, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Troy. Now, let's start here. Your contention uh, in the piece that you've written is that our current immigration system is too restrictionist as an economic matter. So why don't we begin with some specific examples? What developments do you point to in American life and say this wouldn't have happened or this would have been better had we had more immigration? Well, it's not so much more immigration but more of the right type of immigration. Our immigration system is family-based rather than jobs and skills-based. So we are losing out on some very important human capital. I would point at the low-skill side of things to the recent experiences in Alabama and Georgia when they sent their illegal immigrants packing and as a result, they were unable to hire uh, enough farm workers. The crops literally died on the vines. They were unable to hire uh, American laborers at the wages that they were paying. Uh, this in turn had a devastating effect on middle class jobs, agricultural processing jobs, and the two states lost billions of dollars in GDP. Just on, on that one point, if we had a more rational immigration system that allowed a functioning and regular guest worker program, we could have had legal immigrants working those crops. What we now have instead is that many of those agricultural jobs are moving to Central America and we're losing them altogether. Now, you mentioned there a moment ago the defect in the current system with the emphasis on on chain migration, that is on, on letting people into the country so that they can be together with members of their family rather than an emphasis that centers on the jobs. Give us an idea of how chain migration works. How, how much of our immigrant population is coming here via that emphasis and what does it look like in practice? When we say family, how close does it have to be? Unfortunately, it doesn't have to be close at all. Every country allows uh, close family members to have uh, an immigration preference, and that only makes sense. Most countries uh, define family for immigration purposes as the nuclear family, that is, your wife or husband and your uh, young children, your, your children below adult age. In the 1970s, in what was not considered to be a major change, American immigration policy redefined family to include siblings, parents, and adult children. They all get preferences. They, in turn, get preferences for all of their family members as well, and that's what's called chain migration. Now, today, out of every million uh, new immigrants that we bring in legally every year, two-thirds of them come with family preferences only 14% of all of our legal immigrants come each year for work or skills or investment. Okay, and when we talk about that change, about shifting the emphasis to jobs, is that on all jobs equally? Should we be treating the, the research chemist and the farm worker the same or do you create different structures for different kinds of industries? How should that work? 
We definitely need different structures and certainly perhaps the most compelling and hopefully the easiest is to fix the system at the top end with people with skills that Americans in sufficient numbers do not possess. It is really frustrating that we still bring in millions of kids every year, the best and the brightest to study at the best American universities. But when they graduate, in many instances, they can't stay here because we give out so few visas. Even in the STEM uh, occupations, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, where we are now also exporting jobs to Canada and to other countries like uh, Chile has what's called uh, the Chilicon Valley, where uh, entrepreneurs and high-tech, uh, high-skilled people can immigrate very, very easily. Here in the United States, we have a lottery system for uh, only 60,000 visas that we give out each year for high-skilled workers, and the lottery is exhausted in a matter of days. And as a result, if uh, if companies need more workers, uh, they have to either move to another country or take their chances in this uh, in this lottery. That's the high end of the market. Let's talk about the low end. Let me ask you about the wage question that always comes up because you talk in your piece about the possibility of having a red card system where you're matching visas to jobs. And particularly when you're talking about relatively low wage industries, I guess we can return here to the example of farm workers, for instance. You always hear the argument, well, why would you ever hire another American again when you can essentially engage in sort of labor market arbitrage and bring in all the cheap foreign labor that you want? How do you respond to that? Well, I would think that most of the listeners to this podcast understand labor economics very well and the market works there just like it works anywhere else. And if uh, above a certain wage level, the jobs will simply leave the country. For example, half of the world's apples now are grown in China. We're eating Chinese apple pie at Thanksgiving these days. And uh, these these are not fungible. They're, they're simply not jobs that you can pay unlimited wages to. You either uh, you either pay what the market can bear, or the jobs disappear from this country altogether. And unfortunately, despite uh, tremendous efforts and despite some wage increases, American workers. Uh, in, uh, frequently will not do this backbreaking work. In fact, in Alabama and Georgia, the, the example that I used earlier, uh, it was asylum immigrants who were in the mid, who had been settled in the Midwest, who eventually were brought down to do this this agricultural work. Despite very widespread uh, recruitment efforts by the the farms they could not hire american workers for these jobs so it's it's simply a a a situation where we either import the labor or we export the jobs right now we're doing the latter and i want to get you to weigh in on something that's maybe a little bit of a side issue but truly a relevant one uh it comes from your piece you write given that the u.s birth rate is flat and our population is aging We need productive young immigrants to foster economic growth and help us keep our social welfare promises. Okay, we've talked about the economic growth aspect. Let's talk about the second aspect of this, immigration as a means to keep social welfare promises. And This is, of course, one of the arguments that always comes up about immigration in Europe. You might like it. You might not. 
but it's the only way that we can balance the books. So regardless of what side of the immigration issue you're on though, isn't the real issue there with the, the welfare state itself? I would think that you could be in favor of a pretty open immigration policy and still contend that it's a, it's a bad idea to have a set of financial obligations so binding that it essentially eliminates any discretion you may have in choosing how you want to structure your immigration system. Well, you know, Milton Friedman once famously said you can't have open borders and a welfare state and of course he was absolutely right. But we're also learning the converse is true. You can't have a welfare state and not have immigration Mm. because you don't have enough people to support the promises that we've made. And of course the promises that we've made – are are primarily social security with our aging population and an ever decreasing number of workers supporting them. This is where the uh, current immigration laws also create a a horrible mismatch. When you have family-based immigration, that means you have elderly people coming in because uh, the uh, legal immigrants can bring their parents And you have a lot of uh, kids being brought in. And of course, neither of those are are going to contribute uh, to the economy. In the case of older immigrants, never uh, are they going to contribute to the economy. But because they're legal immigrants, they can consume social welfare services right away. If we shifted to a work-based immigration system where we were bringing 50 or 60 or 70 percent of our uh, immigrants in who were uh, in the prime of their productive years, they would not only uh, contribute into the system right away and not consume from the system, but they would also be creating more and more jobs and putting more and more Americans to work. So uh, when when people say, oh, for gosh sakes, we've got to control the border first or whatever and, and then worry about fixing the system later on, we've got to fix this system right now. It is it is simply a, a mismatch where we are burdening our, our country with many of the immigrants that we're bringing in rather than uh, in the past how we brought people in who immediately contributed to the American economy. Final couple of questions on this on the, on the political side. You've worked extensively on this issue. You co-authored the book Immigration Wars with Jeb Bush. We are coming up on a, on a decade now where this issue has been pretty front and center uh, from when George W. Bush made a serious effort at an immigration overhaul in a second term to today when President Obama is also trying to take it on. So a couple of political questions from that. The first one I'll put to you, in that time, in that almost decade where this has been simmering, do you think the political climate has become more or less favorable towards the kind of immigration reform that you're advocating for? Well, I I think it's become both better and worse at the same time. (laughs) If you look at public opinion polls, support for comprehensive immigration reform is overwhelming, not just among Democrats and independents but among Republicans as well and even among Tea Party Republicans, support for sensible immigration reform is very, very high. Um, But at both the left end of the spectrum and the right end of the spectrum, the labor union side and perhaps the the right side of the Tea Party movement, you've got people for whom this issue simply is not one in which they're willing to, to move forward at all. And it is very, very easy to obstruct 
uh, sensible reform or, or pretty much anything. That's what our system was set up to do uh, is to make it tough to pass legislation. In most instances, that warms my libertarian heart. But in this <laughs> instance, when we have a, uh, a, an immigration system that is absolutely disastrous and that uh, uh, creates the problems that we're trying to solve, uh, it's frustrating to, to see – the thwarting of very strong majority support for immigration reform. Well, that leads me to my final question, which is as a political matter, what has to happen? What's the variable or variables that determines whether or not this kind of reform ever becomes law? What could well, break the logjam? I think a lot of Republicans are waking up to political reality. Not only did they get 27 percent of the Hispanic vote in the last presidential election, they got only 26 percent of the Asian vote. This is a very entrepreneurial, pro-family, pro-education segment of our population. It is the fastest growing immigration group and that is a, a recipe for disaster if the Republicans don't fix that. What I think is going to change, I'm, I'm hoping to see immigration reform in the very, very near future to put this issue behind us and to fix the system. If it doesn't happen, what's going to be different about this presidential election is we are going to have some candidates possibly Jeb Bush among them, but others as well, like Paul Ryan perhaps and others, who are not going to back down. They are not going to demagogue the immigration issue. We saw Mitt Romney perhaps commit general election suicide when he demagogued the issue of, of immigration to try to win uh, uh, right-wing supporters in the primary only to handicap himself in the general election. That's not going to happen this time when we have candidates who understand that we need to fix this problem and we also need to fix the Republican perception among immigrants uh, that they are hostile to, to immigrants. All right. Our guest has been Clint Bollock, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of the Goldwater Institute Center for Constitutional Litigation in Phoenix. Clint, thank you for joining us. Troy, thanks for a great interview. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.